Welcome to Bio, a podcast produced by the Biographers International Organization. Bio is devoted to promoting the work of biographers and advocating for biography as a genre with the support of biographers and biography lovers worldwide. I'm Bio member Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles. On each episode, we'll talk with the biographer about his or her work. This time, the writers Ash Carter and Sam Kashner. Their new biography is titled Life Isn't Everything, Mike Nichols as Remembered by 150 of His Closest Friends. The director Mike Nichols left an indelible imprint on Hollywood and Broadway and over his lifetime won a raft of accolades for his work. Carter and Kashner decided to take an 11,000-word magazine article they'd done on Nichols and expand it into this oral history. They began by making a spreadsheet, listing all the people they knew they needed to talk to. Backstage at a book talk they were about to give in Santa Monica, California, the week after their book's release, I asked them about the challenges of doing an oral history and how two people delineate the work. You know, Ash had worked at uh, Town & Country and at Esquire. I was at Vanity Fair. And so through our work as journalists in, in these other realms, we also occasionally either knew certain people we wanted to talk to or other people in the magazine had maybe interviewed them about something. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of pulled every thread in the sweater that we could get our hands on, you know. But then assembling it is totally different than writing. Well, I mean, I guess it's oh, similar yeah. to writing a magazine article and that it's not, right? It's more like making a documentary film, That's right? true, yeah. yeah. Absolutely right, yeah. So did you did you have this list and, and add to it and then just finally say, okay, that's it, now it's time to assemble? Or were you assembling along well, the way? Well, basically, we were letting these interviews pile up and, I mean, if we were left to our own devices, we probably would have just kept going until, you know, we decided we had talked to the very last person, which we would never, of course, never would have gotten to that point. And so essentially our publisher was just like, you know, where the hell is the book? So that's when we had to start assembling it. But even as we were doing that, we were still talking to people basically right up until we sent the thing to the printer. So it was only, we only got the... It's honestly, we, it's not that we decided to stop at 150, that would sound like a round number. We only, we, we just sent the manuscript in, somebody at the publisher counted it up, and that's just where we landed, so. It is a great title, <laughs> so I wasn't sure if you systematically said we're going to mm-hmm. do that number. Or no, yet. no, in fact, I remember begging our editor for more time because there was a, a chance to interview Emma Thompson uh, in person, which was always better than you know being given 15 minutes over the phone, and uh, and it, it ended up that I didn't go to London. I didn't, and you know she just made a recording for us of her reminiscences of Mike. Hmm. But um, so those kind of things presented themselves at the last minute. And you don't know what to do, but you you know she's she's so essential to the to the book, you know, she was in Primary Colors and Angels in America, fam- more famously. You know? Right, Yeah, right. I mean, I think, even, you know, Peggy and Noonan, and uh, Peggy Noonan, who's a, a good friend of Mike's uh, wife, uh, Diane Sawyer, was added between the second 
proof and the, the, the final manuscript, you know, so I think she was number 150, if memory serves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it, that's the other thing I wondered is we talk in radio, I've, I'm both a writer and a radio person, and in radio there are some people who don't want to sit across from someone and look at them and talk to them because they find that people are more open. Terry Gross, famously with Fresh Air, does not like to be in studio mm. with her subjects. That's true. And then there, then you find that exactly what you were saying. You know, if you can sit with someone, it, maybe you get more time, or maybe they get more emotional. Or, so I'm sure that it's a ridiculous thing to ask you to generalize it because I'm sure there is no way to generalize uh -huh. it. But what was your experience with that? Since you were, sounds like you were doing both. Oh, well, you know, I was just, I don't know why I'm saying this, but I was on Terry Gross's show, not about this book, but about a memoir, mm -hmm. and you're right, I was in my pajamas, and she was in her pajamas <laughs> in Philadelphia, and I was in my pajamas in Brooklyn, and uh, it's a weird feeling, though. It's like, uh, are you my life coach? Or, I mean, I really didn't kind of get it. And I wasn't very good at it because it was uncomfortable talking about the serious thing. It was close to my heart, uh, to a kind of disembodied voice, you know what mm. I mean? But that exact thing might work for somebody well, else who's thing. freaked out by Sam, a microphone, right? Sam is probably more of a purist. He right. is generally almost always preferred to do things in person. And I think produced some of my favorite interviews in the book, like the one with Dustin Hoffman or Robert Nichols. He, you know traveled to their homes in both of those cases. I both because uh, I'm cheap, but also because I, I do think that cheap. I personally work better over the phone because I can kind of make notes as I talk to them. Whereas right. if you do that in person, it looks like you're not paying attention and so forth. So I think that you get different results and it depends on the person too. I think that um, I don't know, you know, I, I did I some of my favorite interviews that I did in for the book were with uh, sort of theater folk and I did a lot of those over the phone um, but then you know the the great Broadway producer Emmanuel Eisenberg I met him in a noisy diner and that was kind of the perfect setting for a guy like that so after how many how many years was it how long has this process been from three years three so did you find yourself starting to feel like everything you thought about was from the lens of Mike Nichols 360, all the, not just the people. I mean, how immersive did it feel to you? Or were you able to shut it off and just say, okay, I'm done with that guy. Let's tomorrow or next week I'll. Well, we both it? had day jobs. So that, you know, this yeah. is, we were, part of the reason the book took so long is because, you know, wasn't, uh, we, we had a lot of other assignments and things in between right so yeah but i i had dreams about mike nichols you know i mean during this whole thing and uh, they weren't all pleasant dreams i mean uh, in in one dream I, I was we were i was with him in a in a garage in which you know it's an automatic garage opener and he said why can't you make this work and he was really giving me a hard time because i was just so unmechanical and it was just a fear too that i probably could make the book work or um you know it was i mean i i, I didn't analyze the dream very much but, but i don't think you have to <laughs> but he was angry that we were trapped in this garage and i couldn't get the door open and so that's kind of a, bi a biographical nightmare or anxiety <laughs> dream, don't yes, you think? Yes, absolutely. Cla I would think it's classic, oh, yeah. Well. I, I will say that it was 
I mean, it's a, it was a la- certainly a labor, but also it was a labor of love. That A big part of the reason we did the book, <laughs> despite the fact that, you know, m- m- maybe he was... Uh, he, he, it was just that he was a, somebody who really personally captivated both of us. And so it was a way of getting to know him better than we were able to in life and spending time with him and and, uh, and I think that that was also true for a lot of the people that we spoke to and that's a, a reason why they were eager to, to talk about him. Well and that was my next question about the whole you know the idea that he didn't write his own memoir and that I assumed that there were no there was no repository of papers it's not like you went to some no. library somewhere yeah. so this is the the only way to do it well I mean I guess you could have written a narrative right Well there yeah I mean there is a you know another uh, Mark Harris is working on a traditional biography I Honestly, he he must have had his work cut out for him because we we know that he didn't have you know you, you'd have to really go find them paper by paper because he, he he was not a good kind of archivist of his own life at all. Yeah, he you know he didn't donate his papers to you know UCLA or something like that or yeah I mean you know his, the Berg collection at the New York Public Library <laughs> it's not going to happen. No, I know, and his. Uh, agent Ravi Lance said if someone has a note from Mike to the milkman leave two bottles it's a collector's item because Mike did not he was just a, kind of a very verbal person I mean, you know more than almost anybody but he, he was not he did not write a lot of things down so he was too busy doing stuff yeah, right? so in a way yeah, you know doing an oral biography is kind of appropriate for somebody who kind of lived in in such a verbal life and and was really at his most alive in the company of others and yeah so you and you've chosen not to do what we call the cradle to grave like you're saying this other biographer does you zeroed in did you know that going in that you were going to zero in on a particular period or particular work or did you did that evolve as you were talking with people what do you think well i mean it is i mean you know it is cradle and grave but it's not, you're right, it's not a kind of kitchen sink approach. Uh, I think, I mean, really what we did is, is um, I mean, we, you know, there are certain, certain obvious things that are just such screaming highlights of his career, uh, you know, from the Compass Theater and, and his work with Elaine May to, you know, the string of early films and plays. And um, he doesn't, obviously, you're going to want to devote a lot of space to that. But then, um, you know, there were others. I mean, only I guess probably midway through the project did we decide like to devote a whole chapter to Angels in America and interview everybody in that cast, and or you know, to have a chapter on the designated mourner was something we would did not plan on. It just as it came up, we, you know, Sam interviewed Wally Shawn, and it was just such a kind of fascinating and surprising little chapter that a lot of people don't know about. And so, you know, we just decided to pursue that a little further. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, also, this is a man who kind of lived to work, you know, so much of his life went into his work. So to write about the work is also to write about the life. It just comes out of of writing about the films and the, and the stage work and and his work with Elaine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's kind of unavoidable when, when someone is that 
you know, whose, whose work is so important to him. But I think the other thing that we were interested in in, 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 in doing the book and compiling all this is that his friends and colleagues were so interesting. I mean, you know, Meryl Streep and Tom Stoppard and Natalie Portman and, um, you know, people who are not as well known. These people are, are interesting in and of themselves. And, uh, and so you kind of get a sense of who they are in this book as well, I think. Um, and, and the idea of, of throwing a kind of enormous dinner party, you know, in which there's really good conversation, even if the subject is primarily Mike, is also what we were kind of after too, you know? Yeah, I mean, you know, right. what, it, we don't say that this is the last word on his life, but we, but what, what a book like this, what it lacks in definitiveness, we hope that it makes up for it in intimacy. What will you do next? Anything you're going to do next probably will feel less daunting, although that's dumb to say because I don't well, know what you're working on next. No, we're not. I mean, our oral history of George Washington, it's, very, <laughs> it's been very hard to find uh, people willing to talk. Yeah. But no, we haven't actually come up with, with a sequel to, to this, but you're right, it is... He's a tough act to, to yeah, follow. That's true. And we've already, I feel like we've already spoken to nearly everyone in show business <laughs> and in the movies yeah. and in the theater. Um, and uh, so we'll, we'll see. It'll, it'll, it'll come to us. But I really like this form. I mean, I, I, in fact, Candace Bergen the other day at, a, at an event said, I don't know why this form isn't more popular you know, with biography and, and with biographers. I know the answer. It's hard. <laughs> it took two of you, no, right? I mean, true. it's not an easy... No. Not, I mean, that's not to... I mean, writing a proper biography, is uh, that's a heavy lift. It's a it, different part. It's yeah. different, though. Yeah. I think, I mean, look, I, you know, I would say it, that's probably heavier labor, but this this kind of book does have challenges that... Uh, traditional biographer does not our names are on the cover we put the thing together but we don't inter, we don't kind of uh, insert ourselves into the narrative mm-hmm. and I you know we, we thought it would just there was something nice about just having the entire thing composed of, of the testimonies of all these people but then when you don't have suddenly you're reading through what you've got and there's just a gaping hole you can't just tell that part of the story yourself if you even if you know it you know you have to go and do some follow-up interviews or find some other people who can tell about that little part of his life because once you've made that decision you're committed and so that's a challenge that I think was is unique to this kind of book Um, uh, but you know it's it's kind of easier in other ways yeah, in that sense, it's just like a documentary, a non-narrated yeah. Yeah. documentary film. And yeah. I should say, we did have two models. One was both by George Plimpton and Gene Stein, the, the Truman Capote oral biography, which is kind of wonderful, and, uh, and their book on Edie Sedgwick, you know? Both excellent. Yeah. 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 I mean, one is great because he was so, Capote was so compelling. Mm-hmm. And Edie and Sedgwick. Uh, um, yes, that's okay. true. That's true. Uh, people ran kind of hot or cold about him. But, uh, and Edie Sedgwick, I mean, even though her, her own story is somewhat compelling, she it was kind of a cipher. And, and it was interesting 
if you wanted to know about the milieu, the, you know, the, and, and that period, mm -hmm. that was kind of great too. And we wanted the best of both worlds, you know, a compelling personality and also to kind of recreate a sense of the milieu and the era in which he, he did all this work, which covered decades, you know. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I recently read uh, Ben Moser's Sontag biography, which mm -hmm. I, I oh, congratulations. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I really enjoyed, and I and I, I recommend to people. But one thing I sort of, you know, having just finished this book, and I, I felt a little bad for him, is that as kind of a much of a titan of the 20th century kind of intellectual culture as she was, she was a personally very difficult person, and became more so as her, her life went on. So you know, and as you the longer you get into this book, he's just kind of dutifully cataloging all these examples of kind of monstrous behavior, whereas we had the good fortune of having a subject who was more difficult in the beginning part of his career and actually kind of, you know, mellowed as time went on. So you're left with a more positive feeling. And that's, you know, just, that's just dumb luck. That's Ash Carter speaking to me with his co-author, Sam Kashner, about their new book from Henry Holt, Life Isn't Everything. Mike Nichols, as remembered by 150 of his closest friends. I interviewed them on November 19th, 2019, in Santa Monica, California, just after the book's release. To learn more, please visit our website, biographersinternational.org. Enzo De Palma created our theme music. Cherie Newman is our podcast editor. I'm Lisa Napoli in Los Angeles. Thanks for listening to Bio.